Awesome. How's it going? It's going good. Nice to see your face. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I haven't seen you since uh, Surfo before yeah. the world locked down. But um, yeah, I know. Yeah, I was like kind of on the edge of it. It really was. I mean, it's crazy to think that everything was felt so normal at that time. And then all of a sudden it just, you know, everything changed. Yeah, we were, um, uh, I think uh, we may have hosted the last last event at least in north america before lockdown because we had a an event on the second weekend of march and um uh and i remember that uh, just like the week before that a few of our international students none of our international instructors pulled out but of a few few people who were traveling from uh, it was funny like i remember it was a few people from sweden dropped out and uh and i remember sweden had one case at that time and i was like that seems <laughs> a little little uh <laughs> a little alarmist uh yeah. and i and i I remember Italy though was in that full on like yeah, craziness was, and, and yet we were still like, I know my, my partner and I were like, man, maybe it's a good time to go to Italy, you know, like all those tourist <laughs> sites totally open. Um, right. and you know, so there's still some naivety there. And I know that at the first day of this, we like told everybody to do, they were calling like the Italian toe tap or something like that. Like the Italians were like tapping feet. So we like told them don't hug, you know, that kind of thing. But of course, after three days at a big conference, what was everybody doing at the end? Big hugs and, you know, yep. all that kind of thing. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was, it, it was, you know, and, and I remember I like through the weekend, I was actually getting bits of news. And then I like talked to one of my staff here. I was like, you know, we're, we really need to start working on a, on a plan to like, make sure that our our health protocols are like as awesome as they can be that kind of thing still really not thinking that it was going to go beyond just you know just making sure let's just make sure we're doing extra disinfectant wipes and you know all these kinds of things and then you know like so we came out of the event i like spent actually my like the last night of the event i actually spent it working on our health protocols so we could have them the next day and then a week later we were just closing <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was was that the event that you guys held where you had all sorts of martial artists from all around the world teaching all different disciplines right um we did yeah it was our theme yeah. that year was we've been doing this kind of theme over the last uh, several visits which is like a this versus that kind of theme and so this year we did uh, or that year we did east meets west and so i was actually doing um I did a really interesting track, which was um, with uh, Manusher Khorasani, where we did the Bolognese tradition and the uh, Persian martial oh, tradition. Cool. And awesome. so it was really cool. We did um, so each each the, we kind of the, the format of this is in the morning. Um, we have uh, it's, it's all based around these in three day intensives. So you um, in the morning, you pick an instructor to be with in the afternoon, you pick an instructor to be with and you're with that instructor for three days. And then there's a, um, an elective track that's in the middle. So you can do a little bit of like sampling other people, get some other ideas. Uh, and those electives are three hour blocks. Uh, and um, uh, and so we, you're, you're, so in the morning, uh, you would be like, for example, in my, in our track in the morning, you were with Manusher in the afternoon, you were with me. Uh, now people don't necessarily have to do that, but most people sort of pick that, the the track that's set up. And then on the last day, we do a joint meeting between the two instructors and, and the two groups come together and we, we explore, and this was up to the instructors, how they did it, but explore how do those two arts come together um and uh, and so yeah it was really cool in ours we did um uh, uh we did i did partisan and um 
Uh, Manushera did, I think it's called the Naruz, which is a bladed spear from the Persian tradition. Uh, we did um, sword, I did sword and rotella. Uh, and he did, uh, did I do sword and rotella? Yeah, I think I did sword and rotella. And he did shamsher and buckler. Uh, and, uh, and we did, and I did, um, partisan and trans partisan in one hand. Uh, and then, so that was, we basically had kind of the main meeting was between the, the Shamsher and the, the side sword and between the Naruz and the, and the, um, the partisan. And, uh, it was really, it was very, very cool. It was really, really great. I loved working with Manusher. He's, he's a, a pretty rigorous guy. He's a pretty like intent martial artist. Like he really, he really brings it. And then we also did, um, a bunch of uh, demo bouts um, on the uh, uh, between the different instructors. So I did a sword and buckler versus sword and shamsher uh, bout with uh, Manusher, which was was a lot of fun. Yeah, so I, I'm gonna have to. I might have to include this conversation. In yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I thought that as we went. Just go ahead. <laughs> but so um, it's it's interesting that uh, you did that because I right before the pandemic when I was down. Well, I was up in um, I was up in Pittsburgh, um, yeah. so down for you, but up for me. <laughs> but uh, I was up in Pittsburgh, and I was um, I was talking to a bunch of guys that do um, Hama, so they do uh, African martial arts, right? And um, I was kind of I just had this realization that perhaps our perspective on how the Italians would have viewed themselves in terms of Hema is kind of wrong in a way, where Oftentimes we just kind of loop the Italians into just being a part of the like European peninsula and just saying like you are because you are European. That is like that's kind of like your identity, whereas I don't think that Italians, especially in that period, would identify themselves as inherently being European as I mean, sure, part of Christian Christendom. Sure. But I think that they would have seen themselves more as sort of. Um, people of the Mediterranean like I, I think that that's mm. really always been their identity and I think that that's that was an identity that they were trying to recreate and so you know oftentimes I think that we we kind of get caught up in, in looping them into you know everything that ends up being like inherently Germanic but I feel like they're that that's not really the identity that they were holding on to so I, I'm, I've always been curious about this idea of Italian martial arts and is it necessarily a response to you know the the constant German incursions and, and various like Germanic tribes that came down into the Italian peninsula or is it sort of this this pan Mediterranean approach to sword fighting that encompasses other things and responds to things like fighting somebody with a shamshir and a buckler right yeah it's an interesting thought like I was thinking about you know what in the same way that sometimes I think about what qualifies, especially when I'm thinking the moniker Western martial arts versus historically European martial arts, that kind of narrows. But you know, when I started, the first moniker that came around was Western martial arts, and so I thought all the time about what qualifies as a Western martial art, you know, and uh, uh, and so I, you know, I think I think about that. I also just think about this about what qualifies as an African martial art. Do the Roman arts qualify as African martial arts? It's a great point. Right? You know, like that's kind <laughs> yeah. of an interesting, interesting thing. Does, you know, like thinking about like Car the Carthaginian Empire, the, you know, like there's a lot of this, which, which I, which I agree with you is more of this Mediterranean centricity versus a European centricity. And certainly Rome and Carthage 
contrasted and complemented one another uh, and were in a greater relationship with one another than um, uh, in many ways during that time than Rome and the Germanic tribes, even though the Germanic tribes were there. Um, uh, there's, uh, yeah, it's, you know, that was, there was a real, that was an intensity across the Mediterranean there. And then also we think about, you know, this is something that um, uh, there is certainly a way that Italians continue to associate themselves with Rome uh, for, for a long time, because they still do now. There's still a way that Italians want to associate, associate with many Italians, culturally associate themselves with the Roman Empire. Um, even though they also at the same time very strongly associate themselves with whatever their region is, you know, whatever their really small part of Italy is. Um, uh, And uh, uh, and then, you know, and then through that, there is this connection to the Greeks and because of the, the, you know, the the revival of classical texts and all that kind of thing, which is such a big part of Italy and is in the Bolognese tradition, this connection to, especially when we think of things like the partisan and Rotella. This is, this is more connection to me. The thing I think about partisan Rotella is I think there's that, that uh, it's, you know, it's hard to say because they don't give us um, lots of detail into their reasoning of why they include certain things in the system. But there seems to be a lot of connection to the Greek epics for partisan and Rotella more than there is to this is a practical thing that you're going to be using on the battlefield or for self-defense or for civil defense. Um, and so that seems again to have more of this interest, which we see in the Renaissance of fencing in that time has a lot more to do with how do we take this knowledge from the Greek texts uh, and, uh, and start looking at the, this, you know, this sort of rebirth of science and how we apply science to martial arts and all that kind of thing. So that's also, again, that's not a pressure of conflict developing that art. That's kind of like a pressure that we have now, which is this desire to connect with, with this sort of classical wisdom knowledge. Yeah. Uh, so I think, and that's again, more Mediterranean than it is. Uh, and, you know, and certainly when we look at the, the Greeks, even now, the Greeks are feel often more connected with Mediterranean um, uh, countries than they do with European countries. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Italy's just had a little bit more, well, maybe it's Italy's had more invasions. Well, that's for sure. <laughs> right. You know, it's, like, it, especially when we're talking about like our time period of yeah. you know, any time between like 1350 to like 1550, it's like 200 years of just like constant incursion. Totally. And now, and now, you know, one thing we've got, you know, that's going to shape our perspective and the Italian perspective is Italy's had many more invasions from Europe over the last few hundred years, whereas um, prior to that, you know, so that may have influenced the development of the martial art, but I'm just more thinking, I'm thinking that actually that that's more influenced the perspective of Italians on Italians over the last couple hundred years, you know, 300 years, than it was something that drove them before that time. Um, uh, When again, yeah, definitely, there's a lot more, you know, the pre-Renaissance period, there's a lot more um, uh, stuff for you know a couple thousand years before that is coming from the Mediterranean than it is coming from from the north, and yeah. so you know if we want to think about the ant- the antiquity roots, you know what the cultural lineage that's building up there. I, I I think it's a very interesting thought to think about it coming from the from a more greater Mediterranean influence perhaps than than European. Yeah, because I mean you, you think about humanism and its influence on especially the way that people were 
talking and thinking at the time. And I mean, you don't have to look any further than Manchiolino to just see like the influence of humanism on his perspective right. on everything, right? Like, I mean, to start the book four, we get this, uh, um, you know, this long, uh, just expose on on like classical literature, which obviously he was um, aware of. And, you know, I'm reading a great book right now um, by William Caffaro on John Hawkwood. And oh yeah, Hawkwood is constantly referencing um, through writings or um, you know uh, various sort of uh, letters that he wrote to other people um, his influence and his understanding of vegetus. And I'm I'm thinking, okay, so we're already like pushing back into you know the mid to late 1300s, and you're you're already seeing this this influence start to develop. And this is really what people are focusing on is just kind of rebuilding this Roman idea back into Rome, right? And, mm -hmm. and it's, it's crazy because, um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that they thought the Germans were just kind of annoying for constantly coming back down, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, every time they get involved in some sort of a conflict and they start to get an advantage, it's like the Holy Roman Emperor comes down, whether it's, <laughs> you know, Charles V in, in, the, in the mid, like, 1500s or you know going back and it's just it's a it's a crazy crazy story it's it's crazy to think but yeah all right so <laughs> i'm gonna give the introduction i'm gonna include yeah, all of that good. in here because that this is fantastic like yeah. um but so here's the introduction um welcome to learte del arme the Bolognese podcast, where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition with the practitioners, translators, authors, and teachers working to bring the art back to life. Today's guest, um, who you've already heard conversation with, is Devin Borman, co-founder and director of Academy Duello in Vancouver, Canada. Devin is perhaps a man who needs no introduction due to his prodigious output, excellence, and worldwide acclaim. From TED Talks to Academy Duello Online, Devin has reached, mentored, and inspired ventures all across the globe. Devin, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be here, and I'm glad we started just right into a discussion. It was, <laughs> was super good. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> so um, the first question that I usually ask people is, um, tell me a little bit about your martial arts background and how you got started in Western martial arts. Sure, yeah. When I was, uh, when I was a kid from almost as young as I can remember, I really loved swords and sword play. Uh, I don't know if that's true of I think that's true of lots of little kids you know certainly we have little kid programs here and and we our program started eight but we frequently got even like parents of four-year-olds who are like do you have any programs for four-year-olds so apparently I was not alone um and I like like sword swing and daycare I suppose that I, I that would have been something I would have would have loved I don't know if I'd love it as a parent but I think I would have loved it as a kid well, if you get to drop them off, then it's pretty awesome. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's right. Just as long as he's got his eyes, <laughs> when, I, when I come back, I'm happy. <laughs> I'm just imagining a little daycare with all the kids, like in some sort of like little padded, padded helmets and things. You just send them in there, the boffer sword. <laughs> that sounds cool. Uh, yeah, totally. We could have a whole new level of, uh, of experimental archaeology. Today, I equipped all of the four-year-olds with rotellas and partisans just to see what techniques they might explore. <laughs> what really comes naturally to the human body? <laughs> 
Uh, wow, I hadn't realized how easy that program was going to be to launch, JD. Like just until this moment, I I, I hadn't realized. You don't don't even need instructors; just a lot of padded right. walls. Right. <laughs> Your kid will come; they'll sleep like nobody's business when you get exactly. them back. Exactly, that's what oh, parents man. want. <laughs> exactly. Yep. I was going to say that's what every parent would be like. You mean it? I mean, like that yeah. sounds fantastic. God, I'm on board. <laughs> uh, so. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I wanted to, I just, you know, I love sword, sword play. I, you know, I think um, my dad was a, a total, like uh, out of university, been like a board game role-playing nerd early on. So that definitely had influenced me. You know, I like, you know, he read me Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and, and those sorts of things. And I started reading fantasy novels and then even historical fiction. My dad is a really into historical fiction. And so that that really imbued a lot of interest in in history, and then of course the you know exciting part often is the the sword fighting, and uh, I you know one of the earliest Halloween costumes I remember was uh, Zorro a Zorro costume, and uh, and so you know I just had that love that fascination, and I you know I don't know, I I did start asking about fencing or being able to learn something early and I we just it wasn't something that we knew about my family didn't really have connections to modern fencing we didn't know where to find that it was kind of here especially in this area of Canada at the time I think you know it was really like university was the the place where you would get to do some fencing there weren't a lot of uh, like earlier like elementary high school programs of fencing in them so it just was kind of like a, an idea out there and so you know my parents enrolled me in Kung Fu when I was uh, and Kempo when I was when I was young and what I what I always remember in the classes while we were like working on punching and katas and things I would look over and see some of these like brown belts doing some sword forms and be like oh I want that's what I want to be doing but of course they kind of held a lot of that to much later levels in the in the, the schools that I was in uh, and so it had a hard time sort of keeping me occupied and you know I was um, I think I was also a pretty sensitive kid um, so, you know, like going out there and getting slugged and stuff was not necessarily what I wanted to be doing at that time. And, uh, and I enjoyed like there was, you know, there were, I just, I didn't fully connect with, with that as a martial art. I also was, you know, like I was a pretty intellectual kid too. And, and, uh, and I felt like, you know, even early on in, in school, there's like a real pressure towards like smart kids do smart things physical kids do physical things. And I felt like I really got started getting peeled off in this one direction. Um, and, uh, and so that, that uh, kind of left that in the background for a while, even though I did a little bit of martial arts. I got really excited about Filipino martial arts when I was, you know, in my early teens. And why? Because the first thing we started with was weapons. You know, we got to do sticks and knives and all that kind of thing. And it was, there was an intricacy to it that, that interested me. I liked the the systematic there it wasn't systematic in the way that we think is systematic now but there was an approach there was a, a technique that was being applied across multiple disciplines uh in a way that i could see at that time more clearly than i could in the the kempo and kung fu practices i'd done before so that was kind of the that time and that whole time though of course i was still interested in history still interested in sword fighting and um and it was through connecting with uh the society for creative anachronism which is how a lot of especially the old school folks in in North America uh, and HEMA kind of got started. Um, and, uh, you know, I learned that there was a 
group not far from my home meeting in an underground parking lot so very highlander um doing doing sword fighting and it was kind of a cool group because it wasn't just sca folks there was some stage combat people they were a part of there there were people that were just came out to do sword fighting um people with some different fencing backgrounds and martial arts backgrounds so it was quite a melting pot group and so that meant that quite early on um i i you know i went out so this is like in my early teens um i i got there i don't even know if i would have been allowed to fence in a tournament or anything at when i first started doing stuff but i loved it it was exciting it was exactly what i wanted i actually really loved you know like from earlier sparring i hadn't enjoyed it this one i remember like one of my first things they kind of got you sparring right away i remember one of my first times there somebody said how was it i was like oh man i got hit so much it was awesome like I just like that was that, that did not bother me at all. That I just basically went out there and just was like, bleh, bleh, bleh. you know, I like was getting hit all over the place. I was like, okay, well, this is great. Um, and uh, so I was just that was totally thrilling to me. And then I love trying to figure out how do I solve this puzzle and and um, and I you know and you know, I had some early success always helps you feel good about what you're doing. And I had figured some things out and you know felt like some things I tried worked and. And um, uh, so, yeah, that was that was really that kind of launching point. And and I had very early on, there was a guy who who was in the SA, but also was um, did stage combat and was became the sword master for the Highlander television series, um, Bron McCash. And he had Bron put together one of the earliest, you know, other than maybe there's there's a couple. There was a Degrassi translation that was pretty early. Um, there was kind of aimed more at theater people that was published in the UK. Um, we, you know, John Clement's book came out while I was doing stuff um, in that, that time. But, uh, but Braun uh, had very early on produced literal copy and paste, like photocopier and paste book uh, on historical swordsmanship. Um, I still have got to find, I have a copy of it around somewhere. I've really, I want to like digitally, capture it um but he braun had done a bunch of work when because of his, his stage combat stuff his interest in martial arts very diverse martial arts guy he'd gone and got um uh had got microfilm copies from the tower of london of morozzo he'd gotten uh he'd got uh, opportunities to trace and copy things he'd, he had lots of imagery from historical manuals and this is pre-pdfs and all that kind of stuff um and so that was pretty inspiring and he was you know and i our our way of connecting with that stuff was so rudimentary at that time, but it still was inspiring. And so, you know, I got to do, we were doing some science sword stuff and things pretty early because of, of Braun's interest in it. And because he wasn't just sort of fitting the narrow confines of what people were doing, like in the SCA, he was doing it for his job. And so he had this broader interest. And so, uh, so we were, so I even was doing, you know, we had this little, this sheet, a big sheet of microfilm, these tiny little images from Morozzo. Um, and so not useful for the text, but useful to be inspired by the pictures, you know? Yeah. And uh, so like, this is again, you know, like I, I feel, I actually don't feel embarrassed about it, but in a way you could think back like, this was like when interpretation was then was like, that kind of looked like that picture. And we'll make yeah. these pictures go together. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, and so, you know, but we were, you know, and so there was lots of different influences there. Uh, there's a lot of practical sparring, learning from sparring, taking ideas from anywhere, which to me often feels like how HEMA still is in many clubs and places, feels almost the same as this, this kind of early beginning. Um, but I got really, yeah, I got interested in the historical part of it early too, kind of in parallel, separate and parallel to, you know, I was interested to steal stuff from it, but there was like a separate interest in the historical in parallel to just sword fighting. 
Um, and uh, yeah, that's kind of the, the beginning story. And then and that led to me eventually traveling. It, it led to me getting access to some, you know, Bill Wilson, um, uh, who we met and, and became friends after that. He put out a lot of the early uh, PDF copies of historical manuals. So then we started working from those started I started uh, trying to turn I, I learned French growing up so I I used that to kind of leverage that to help me with learning to read Italian um, because there were not a lot of translations there were basically zero translations um, early on um, and that so I started leveraging that to try to like really painstakingly make my way through Capoferro I actually found Morozzo too daunting at that time um, to read because um, he's such so a verbose <laughs> dude <laughs> some still do <laughs> even totally. when there's an english translation there's yeah. still just like marazzo is not my thing <laughs> exactly yeah so that's kind of a little the beginning i started traveling all over the place like i just was i was traveling because i wanted to fence with people i was traveling because i wanted to learn from people um and so i started traveling in that time like all over north america um and i was you know competing in SCA stuff and that was uh, rapier and then side sword stuff early on. There was kind of an early period of SCA side sword, side sword and buckler stuff. So I was doing that. I was competing all over the place and, um, and just fencing. I just loved going to fence. I like, I enjoyed tournaments. I had a time when that was all I could get, you know, get, but actually what I really wanted, I just wanted to fence as much as I could when I went somewhere. And if that meant, you know, participating in two or three tournaments, cause that's what got me fencing. Great. And then I would just keep fencing afterwards as long as I could uh, until, you know, like I was exhausted or there wasn't enough light or, you know, like that was, that was just what I, I wanted to do. And uh, yeah. And then I got involved in a lot of, I got involved in early translation efforts. You know, Jarek uh, Swanger is uh, quite close to me here and he was in the same kind of circle as me. So I spent time with Jarek when he was working on Capoferro translations and, um, and uh, yeah, just, there was, you know, and then I, spent time with um uh bill and gary uh Schlack and uh you know various people just doing work and then also bob sharon who was doing uh work on fiore at the time uh, still is um you know we brought him up here to vancouver a few times early on and so there's just yeah there's there was kind of i was just hungry for whatever i could get to expand my my ideas uh and so yeah and a lot a lot of travel and then eventually traveling to to europe too so yeah that's, that's awesome. kind of the crash course beginning yeah, so I mean, how do how do you think, especially now? Because I mean, we all know that Jarek's doing the Lord's work by translating all of the yeah. uh, the Bolognese texts. I mean, he's he's the patron saint of Bolognese fencing for sure. Yes, yeah. Um, <laughs> but how do you think, um, especially as he's come out in the last like two or three years with almost all of the texts? I mean, obviously we got uh, Stephen Freitas's translation of the Anonimo. And now we kind of have like all the core text. How do you think that that's kind of changed how you've seen people fencing? Do you think it's improved people's fencing overall now that they've, they've been able to kind of look and dissect? Um, yeah, like I think that people's fencing improves in a bunch of different ways. And what, we, what we're measuring in improvement is also, that's kind of an interesting question in itself. Uh, I think that more accessible texts means more people getting inspired by uh, that particular system of fencing, which means is, is everything. More people researching it and trying to do the texts, but also even outside of that, it just means more people doing it. You know, like every person who is getting excited about the text 
uh, has the potential of having a little circle of people around them who are like, I don't care about the book, but it's sure fun that we're doing sword and buckler, you know, or whatever, right? Like that, that creates more capacity for that, which means there's a greater community of people who are exploring. And, and it's, you know, I think sometimes as really passionate, really serious martial arts practitioners who are doing a lot of scholarship, maybe sometimes we feel like, oh, we wish everybody was as passionate and serious as us. But the reality is, is that our growth comes within a community and a community needs, not just is, but needs people who come with all of these different types of interests. You know, there are certainly people in my school here that could care less about the historical sources um, themselves in their study, but are great fighters. And, uh, and their, their great fighting um, helps push the work that those of us who may be interested in when we've got our, when I've got my scholarship hat on that pushes what I, my, my interpretive work and pushes everybody in, in the group and the people who are just socially really passionate, just want to be there and hang out, actually bring energy, like all that is important. So I think again, more sources means more capacity to have little nuclei of people that are interested in, in the Bolognese tradition, or just even the weapons and disciplines that surround it and the kind of idea or, or general approach to that. And all of that has definitely made fencing better. More people means, means more better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. More perspectives, always important. Yeah. So who do you think of the four core masters or authors, um, who do you think informs your fencing the most? Uh, you know, in, in spite of what I said about um, Morozzo and how daunting that was, I did gradually start to work into Morozzo. And so I spent the most time with um, Morozzo uh, from you know, time in, in, in hand and, and on doing the assaults from Morozzo and going through all of the different material. Um, uh, so that's definitely had a big influence. But I also, then I spent a lot of time, especially after Tom translated Manchilino, and I had gone, started going through Manchilino as well uh, to try to do kind of my own translation of it. Uh, but then it was really nice to have Tom's translation. I think he does a really good job, especially of picking out things that are maybe more idiomatic. And, uh, and I think that's really important. I think that's a real challenge um, as, a, as a modern translator, even if you have good grasp of Italian, if you don't have an etymological sense of Italian, if you don't have a cultural contextual sense of Italian within the Renaissance, the, the translations you make are, are going to be missing some important elements. So that then Manchilino, I love that Manchilino was, um, you know, flowery in the places that, that you are flowery in a text of that kind, but then more direct in the places that I want a fencing text to be more direct. And so I think, you know, there's definitely been a long period of spending more time <clears throat> And getting more from from Manchilino. Uh, and then of course I I like <clears throat> I like a lot of the I feel like Dalagokie has some really nice um, systematic refinements. Um, uh, I think there's a lot of things that I feel like he strips away and that makes Dalagokie really interesting but I haven't like immersed myself in Dalagokie other than kind of help it being a really useful and interesting reference that I kind of take back to think about these other texts. Uh, and, uh, and then I feel like the Anonimo, uh, and so I started working from that, the, the, just the Italian reprint of the Anonimo first. And that reprint is just super, just on its own, because it has this amazing index in it that compares all of the different, like, I feel like that was like a game changer in some ways, because that was such a beautiful comparative between the different texts. And the Anonimo gave a bunch of details that weren't there, but I haven't, 
I haven't gone into it as like, I want to really do the Anonimo and do the system as the Anonimo represents. I've just, again, used it more as a way to kind of expand my view of, of I don't know, of, and I, you know, I, I say this very, of the Balinese tradition, we talk about it that way. To me, I'm not certain. I feel like whether, whether that's a real, I think that that's something that we see there as a Balinese tradition. You know, there is maybe a Dardi tradition um, there is definitely a um, contemporary fencing, you know, like uh, people using some similar language, being able to communicate with different groups. Um, but I, I feel like uh, it's really, um, I don't know that, that any of those people would have seen themselves as being in the same tradition. Um, so that's kind of, I feel like, is a real modern kind of idea. So those four texts that seem to be around the same area and place and people are kind of doing the same stuff. That's kind of my, you know, Morozzo is what I spent the most time on. Manchilino is where I, where I dig, and then I use the others. And even Vigiani um, as another source of, of interesting information to, 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 to look in. He also does some nice job of being a bit more of a reductionist. Yes. Um, yeah. uh, and I think that's, that's also, you know, to me, I feel like all of that kind of informs me as, as a practitioner and as a teacher at my own uh, approach to those arts and and gives me again a sense of what are people doing doing around temporally and geographically around a particular master that I'm studying because they are deaf I believe that they those guys are influenced by each other maybe not directly like meaning you know they might not actually be reading each other's books although I think certainly some of them I, I imagine were um, but they there's definitely like a you know it's what's in the water Kind of influence so that that's how i'm working with the texts um uh with each other yeah yeah no i mean i you, you brought up some really good points so i think <laughs> i've i've definitely started to gravitate more to uh, roberto goti's idea that it's just northern italian fencing and that's kind of right. how we should really kind of view it as just this is just northern italian fencing <laughs> right um, i agree with that you know i mean you see the same basic core elements show up um in the Florentine school with Altoni and with uh, Dociolini, um, yeah. with the Segno, and a lot of similar concepts in terms of the way that they do footwork and things like that. So um, I think it's it's hard to divorce everything else that's around the city of Bologna, and nor was the city of Bologna really this big epicenter of anything other than the fact that we just have like these, this sort of, um, glut of of authors that come from this one particular place but i don't know i think you know i think we'll start to see more um similarities i i really wish somebody would give an english translation of altoni i know that there's an italian copy i actually have a copy of it mm -hmm. um and I've, I've tried to translate certain things especially his two sword stuff um yeah you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> um it's a it's a bear but I think that there, I think we'll start to see more similarities the more that we can start to pull out sources from other places. Like, I mean, I look at Levino um, a lot and Levino has some really great advice that I think really kind of helps to even further inform what we see from the other Northern Italian authors um, and kind of like shape the entire system out. I mean, the, the one beautiful thing about Levino that we don't get is we get this, a, a true, back and forth passage between two fencers. Like everything is a right. documentation of two fencers fencing with each other. So we get the A and the B side 
where a lot of times we get the B side left out other than just like maybe one or two principal actions. Like with Mancialino, we'll get one or two principal actions or yeah. with uh, Delagoquier the same. But um, it's nice to see that like this is how a sword fight would go in the mind of a person who is actually there and is a, a contemporary of the time. Um, I think that's it's good stuff. The more I think we explore that, I think we'll have a better framework. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's you know Moroto also has that um, of these again in the same very similar to Mancellino of having these uh, you know you do a bunch of stuff oh and they attack your head that's almost always what it is actually <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they attack your head um, yeah. and uh, uh, and then there's like in the third assault of sword and buckler there's more there's actually a lot more kind of um, back and forth but it's kind of like Morozzo's way of bridging into the strette, which is where we also get again, like in Manchelino, we get a little bit more, here's a circumstance that has occurred and how we respond to it. But I feel like that's, um, it's like, a, it's an advancement on this medieval writing tradition where you're showing these key moments. And it's a slightly more developed version of that key moment. Here's a key moment that happens in sword fighting and how we solve it. Here's another key moment that happens in sword fighting. The thing, though, that we get in the Bolognese text, I think is really interesting. This maybe alludes to, to a, a question you've, you've shared that you might want to talk about is like the tactical system in the Bolognese text is that one thing we see in the Bolognese text, which is quite a contrast to, to things that are going on earlier than them, is phrasing. You know, so we aren't seeing phrasing with a partner, but we are seeing phrasing of this action followed by this action followed by this action. Uh, and that's really interesting. And so um, one thing that I think we don't know is um, uh, we don't know whether uh, what's what is part of a tactical system and what's part of a pedagogical approach. How, how I teach you and how we fight, um, you know, they are related in some way. But we don't necessarily know um, uh, what that relationship is. Uh, you know, if, if uh, you know, think of there's you know certain French fencing schools that spent two years on footwork only, and so you know if if I were to see like a recording of the of two years of uh, you know if that was the record I had is like a video recording of that of that French school, would I what 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 judgments might I make about what French fencing was? Um, in, a, in a super naive way. Oh, they didn't fence with swords at all. It was some sort of movement game that, you know, like like it was this competition all about foot speed or, you know, like I don't like, again, because that's a pedagogy, that doesn't tell me anything about how fence, French fencers fenced uh, at that stage. It just tells me one of their priorities in training. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's just thinking about this, this, uh, you know, this, yeah, this, this transition, what we get where we're missing, we're missing an opponent, but we are seeing a priority towards um, phrasing as a pedagogical teaching tool that you want to be able to move through action after action after action, uh, which tells us something about, you know, maybe about what the expectations of our opponents, we have to infer that other side um, part and and tells us something about one thing that they think is a priority but i was thinking you know about tactically where does it fit so that was kind of a little bit of a rabbit hole off of off of that question no i mean that's that's really good we can transition right into tactics i love talking about the tactics of the bolognese system so um i'm more than happy to engage in this conversation <laughs> but um so i i think that's that it is really interesting i mean the you bring up the strata place and i you know Marazzo almost at the beginning of his strata plays and at the start of um, 
chapter three of, of book one kind of lays it out where he even kind of gives his pedagogical approach to how he would teach his students where, and, and I've had this conversation with people on the, about other systems and, and allowed Marazzo to kind of inform the conversation um, when they're talking about different things, like looking at an author like uh, Joachim Meyer versus like what we see from early KDF, right? And why is, right. why is Meyer so, why does he emphasize the cut so much versus the KDF tradition typically wants you to stay in a sword bind and use a thrust or something like that to come in, right? Or you look at- um, Although, so, although what, is, what does Meyer say? Have you read the, like the end of the rapier section, right? Says yeah. uh, that you should stay in straight bearing and that you should um, orient yourself towards every cut simply by aligning yourself at it. And then he says, and this is actually what you should do with the messer and the long sword as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just here, here's the end, because that's like in the end and in a few of the printings too, it's like, it's kind of like, it goes through all of this stuff about the cut. And then at the very end, he's like, just point your sword at them and keep it pointed at them. Um, <laughs> sorry, should have put this in the beginning. Um, <laughs> Sucks for those of you who didn't read to the end. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so, but the idea that Marazzo lays out basically is, um, and he gives an interesting anecdote where he says that, you know, if you only teach a fencer wide play, um, basically a, a fencer who understands both is going to chase that fencer across the hall. Right. Mm -hmm. And so he says that you should only teach wide. However, he says that you should only teach the beginning of what we'd perhaps consider like Gioco Stretta into uh, grappling, um, which would be more like book two and or um, chapter two and chapter three, you should only teach that to a student who's really interested in sword fighting, right? So to me, it almost sounds like, you know, and, and you can actually speak to this quite well, right? Like if you're, if you're running a business and you're running a fencing school, when people come in and they just want to kind of have fun, you teach them wide play, right? You teach them the, how to cut and how to defend against a cut and a, a lot of emphasis on footwork and things like that. But it, the people who kind of have a certain attitude are the ones that you teach really closing on their opponent. And I think, and he even says like, that's, that's the true art. Like that's the core of the art is actually learning how to close and how to get into grappling situations and how to get into chapter three of his sword and small buckler, which he says you can do with, all the weapons, right? And so, you know, it's interesting because even from Dalagoke's perspective, even though I think that Dalagoke, I, I kind of have this view of Dalagoke as parsing the Boulinet system down and, and trying to basically conform it into what will eventually become the Roman system, right? Like even the way that he breaks the guards down and really only has five principal guards and they're all, um, you know, low guards and then, uh, right and that's basically i mean if you if you look at it he's just giving you uh prima seconda you know yes. corta, right yeah. i mean so he's he's basically condensing the system into what is the modern convention and he even says that in his introduction where he talks about how you know um wide play was used a lot more talking about wide guards in particular um from the ancients, but you know, the, the, the fencing of the day is much more narrow. And, and I, he basically says that he's going to teach a little bit of both, but he's really going to focus more on the narrow plays. Um, mm. And I find that really interesting because, 
you know, when you talk about like the tactical approach of the Bolognese system, um, one of the things that we really get that's pretty fascinating from Manciolino is his use of wide guards and his differentiation between wide guards and or high guards and low guards, right? So mm-hmm. I think whether it's like high and wide or, or even low and wide. So like if you're in a larger guard um, or an Alta, you know, he, he gives you a, a tactical approach where you have so many different ways of attacking, you know, like when, uh, if you look at his um, first chapter where he gives his attacks from all the different guards with his mm-hmm. low guards, he talks about how um, basically, and Morato basically uh, sort of echoes this same sentiment where the, the things that you can do from a low guard are, are thrust or a falso or, um, and, and that's pretty much it, unless you change measure, right? So Manciolino does give you one instance where you're in Cotolongo Alta um, and you end up doing this changing step and that allows you to cut a fendente to the head. But that's the only right. time he cuts from a low guard um, is when you can you do that changing step to give yourself a little bit of space and then deliver the cut. So, you know, I've, I've kind of been thinking about that a lot in terms of, okay, so the low guards are used for defense, delivering thrusts and falsos. And as you're closing in on your opponent, if you can catch them in a low guard, then you basically know that they're limited to those specific things without giving you a big tempo, which you can then exploit, right? And then you start thinking about Dalagokia's tempos of attack where they have to chamber their cut. They'll have to lift their arm in some way or turn their sword away to take their point offline. And then you can exploit that. Um, and so, but if you if you start in a high guard, then you have this like sort of bevy of different attacks that you can use. Um, where you can deliver a cut or a thrust, or you can sort of set up these transitions and things like that. Um, and that's that's kind of what I'm keying in on right now is seeing this sort of tactical approach. And, and Manchilino lays it out pretty well. Um, Marazzo, of course, puts it in like the weirdest place possible. He talks about it in the Sword and Targa section where he talks about watching your opponent's hand because he says if they're in a low guard, they'll have to lift their hand to deliver a cut um, or pull their hand back to deliver a thrust. Um, but that's that's kind of where my mind is at in looking at all these things. Mm-hmm. Well, I think um, one reason that Morozo um, might have kept that advice about where to look to the sword and targa section is just because the targa obscures the view of the opponent much more. And so I think that sometimes that's a question that might come up from a student perspective of when I can't see as much. Where where are my eyes looking? What can I? What what do I do? Where do, what's what's not obscured by by the, the, the target and how do I keep an eye on the opponent when we're both fighting with things that might obscure our view? That's just a, a thought of why sometimes things show up later is that in their pedagogy, that's when, um, uh, that's when that question becomes, comes to the fore in some way. Um, uh, when it becomes, you know, maybe there isn't, you know, like often uh, it's maybe it's not a focus of the system to think about, you know, where, where what we're looking for to predict the opponent. That's not pedagogically important as an early skill. And so it's kind of a, it's an FAQ skill that comes later on when, when there's some pressure on it. I think that you brought up a bunch of interesting things about um, uh, one about, you know, Largo and Stretto and um, uh, that idea of, uh, you know, you said about, you know, from a business perspective, I think that there's a cultural perspective too in, um, in that, um, you know, the Largo um, is, uh, is what, sh- it, it has a, it is much more visually 
um, you know, flamboyant and and displays more of um, of who you are as a as a as a, an Italian gentleman. I think about you know the the commentary about you know mentioning talks about blows from the right being more noble. Um, yes, <laughs> and uh, you know, like in part of this is just this exposed breast. It's the opening the body. It's you know, it's much more daring to the opponent. Um, uh, it's uh, you know, like there's a real cultural display going on in those arts um, that uh, we don't get, you know, we get very um, uh, focused in on the tactics of how do I become successful at defeating my opponent with this, but, but martial arts are a social construct. And so there's really this larger thing going on, which is, um, which is, yeah, how, how do I, how am I displaying myself? How am I winning, winning favor and social standing by the way that I am fencing? Um, and, uh, and, you know, how that certainly it's a social construct for us now too, but our valuation has become more narrowed on this aspect of, you know, who scored the most points or, you know, that, that kind of thing. There's, there's this much broader social context, um, in the, in the time of, of, uh, of these weapons, even in the, the display form, which is, I think is a beautiful thing about the Bolognese tradition is now we have, it's kind of one of the first introductions of a clear, um, display and and sparring fencing form of it versus just an in earnest form of the yeah. art. Uh, and I think that's, that's a really interesting thing. And so back to the, the, um, the Joko Largo side of things, you know, why do you teach that er early? Um, I think, um, uh, you know, it has one, the other thing I think about it is that it is more vigorous and this is commented on as well. You know, it's, it's more vigorous. It's more, you know, there's the exercise component is there, which is one, you know, Manchelina also talks about why you are doing martial arts. Um, and, uh, uh, and, you know, he talks about the broader beyond just the preservation of life, but you also do it to enliven the spirit and, and, uh, uh, and the body. And so uh, I think that there's that part, if you're coming for your, your medieval workout, uh, your your Renaissance workout, you know, like that's something you are selling to your students. I agree with you. I think that there's still that modern thing. It certainly is much flashier. You know, here in our school, people are often drawn now to do our, you know, our longsword program as our one of our entries in the school versus our rapier program. Um, and part of that is, you know, swinging the sword is more intuitive and it's easier to sort of understand a story of the sword fight when you don't know anything about it. And whereas, um, you know, when I, when I talk to, when I have people from other martial arts come in and say, where should I start? I'm really interested. Like if they're real serious martial artists, I often, I often aim them towards the rapier or even I just, you know, like I recently had a guy come in who's a 30 year teacher of Filipino martial arts. And I showed him a bunch of, I showed him long sword and side sword. And then I showed him rapier and he was just like, oh, this is what I want to do. Uh, and it was because it was more, and this is essentially, you know, to my thinking, rapier is a stretta fighting weapon. It stays narrow all the time. Um, and that was where he was like, wow, this is where the intricacy is. This is where the, the, the fine, the feeling and the fine moments of the action and, uh, and, and how my body mechanics align with the weapon. And there's, there's like, this is where I'm going to nerd out. This is what's going to forward me as a martial artist. Um, yeah. and so, you know, I think that fits with those comments, um, of, of the strata being the place that you spend time with people who are really interested in the martial art. I think part of it is because I think it's um, more challenging. It's much more narrowed. And so things that are narrowed require a greater degree of specialization. The, the, the depth of learning is by going down that channel. 
uh, versus, you know, oh, you're bored, I'll show you another way you can cut with the sword. Oh, you're bored, I can show you, like, I, it's, it's actually really about, oh, you're bored, well, let me, you know, show you really about how, what happens when we change the connection of the weapons just this little bit more. Isn't that cool? And to a lot of people, it's like, yeah, that looks cool to you, um, but, but I don't really get it, I don't feel it. Like, I can, I think I understand that, that commentary. Um, yet, you know, as a teacher, I often would say, you know, here, I feel like a lot of my students that started with rapier and then have expanded out, often that's a, a stronger place to start because it spends so much more time in the strata. Uh, and so they have a comfort and a capacity there. They've been forced to play in that world for a really, really long time. And so it's, in fact, they feel, I would say that a lot of people who come from places where they spend a lot of time, what I would say, you know, it's the Largo, when they end up in, in binding situations, they are least comfortable. Whereas people who started with the rapier, it's like, oh, thank God. Now we're doing sword <laughs> yeah. fighting. You know, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm finally in the place that I, this is where I've been waiting to get to this place. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, pedagogically, like in a lot of ways, I think it's a real benefit starting people in this Sretta place. And now I'm talking about Sretta really in, in its sort of barest essential of being, this is the place where the swords uh, bind and stay in, and the point stays in presence um, versus this is the place where we wrestle. It is the place where we go into wrestle. But to me, that's not the defining element of, of Sretta. Um, uh, the defining element is that the weapons are constrained, that they are near one another. And that is, of course, where we go into wrestle. And especially if we have this cultural pressure that the Bolognese people describe to us of going forward, then the Stretta is going to be a place where we wrestle a lot more. And that's the interesting thing now when we're fencing now, there is not that same cultural pressure to go forward. There, nobody nobody uh, um, shames somebody when they come out of a tournament bout because they backed up when the other person was attacking them. Um, often we say, oh, you controlled your distance really well. Good job. Um, as opposed to what a coward you are. A valiant man <laughs> always steps forward while parrying, you know, to again, parry yeah. <laughs> to Mentiolino. Um, uh, well, and so, you know, that, that changes what happens in the stretto as practitioners now more often. Yeah, and well, I mean, we have to preface that statement from Manchiolino when he does say that he does tell you to step back in the subsequent play. <laughs> he does totally. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure. I've always wondered if there's like this cultural thing where, like, I mean, I know, and and um, uh, so we've got this group right now um, in our school that's basically for one of our events coming up. They're recreating a judicial duel based on Tallhofer's uh, rules for a judicial duel and the right. um, things that came from Palace Cal. And yeah. um, there so much of, you know, like the, the first engagement is um, the person who is um, accusing the other person has to deliver the first blow. And the, and the person who's being accused has to receive the blow. Right. And, um, yes. and I'm wondering if there's a little bit of that in there and it's you're allowed to step back or something like that in terms of like your your first step is allowed to be backwards but then everything from there has to progress forwards or at least from there you're supposed to you you are given the expectation that you have to hold your ground um i'm not sure if there's it, that any level of that expectation in there but I, and I, I think that, you know, the one thing, though, that we see in other than we see, you know, in the Bolognese tradition, we see a lot of exits from play, 
you know, in between actions. Yes, um, if you look at like the embellishments, the, the thing that I think is notable in the embellishments that are described is they involve leaving and coming back. Mm -hmm. They don't involve leaving and staying back. Right, right. Um, and so, you know, and even when we think of, re of recovering footwork, they always involve going back and coming forward. Um, they don't right, yeah. involve, like, if we think about, you know, like, uh, to, uh, not to, to, to fly our conversation off into George Silver, but George Silver, you know, talks about flying in and flying out. He really is talking about a sort of a pragmatic idea of getting out. Whereas I feel like the, this is the, the, the cultural thing on the Bolognese side is that they're, they're talking, I think, much more of this idea of, you know, like, even when you, you give yourself some space to do an action, you're not retreating, you're not flying out, you're giving yourself some space. And then as a valiant Italian man, you are then coming back in, you're bringing your, your, your full presence back in, because you never really give up ground. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's that feels cultural, like I think, you know, is as in looking through, you know, and spending time in those manuals, and then reading some, you know, also reading more about the, the times. Uh, I think that if somebody backed up a lot and avoided, you know, just use distance a lot, you know, I kind of played a, what we might consider a cagey fight now, um, that that person would be seen as being more cowardly. Um, that that would, you know, they're not stepping in to engage. They're not, they're not bringing the, the fight in. Um, and, and even if, um, you know, somebody who takes a step backward and then, then comes in again, um, I think that would be considered fine, but as long as it was followed up by coming back in again, if you just spent all of your time parrying, then that would again be, um, you know, like whether that would be considered to, you know, lack a particular aspect of, of courageousness um, um, or fortitude. Um, it would definitely be seen as less virtuous, I think. Yeah, and I think that's something that a lot of people have spoken to about struggling with, especially like, uh, I know Manchilino in particular says that you should follow every parry with a repost. And of course, you know, I mean, that's that's a sentiment that's echoed throughout other treatises as well. I mean, even with uh, Della Goke, you know, I mean, that's that's one of his tempos of attack. Um, but you, you get this notion that you should make a parry and then, you know, continue to press forward. So it's like you're receiving a blow, but then you're instantly coming forward. One, because you do have advantage, but the, the emphasis on that is that you're just not, you know, I think what ends up happening is when you start just receiving blows, that's when you start falling back on yourself and really start taking many steps back, you know, right. whereas if you, if you start pressing back forward, then you're naturally going to be inclined to start moving and pressing into your opponent um, and, mm -hmm. and sort of reinitiating re the attack. Right. So, yeah, that's yeah, interesting. And and I think what what's it, what I, what I'm sort of driving at here too is that we can you know as as modern practitioners we often think about the we're thinking about the the scientific reason uh, you know the the okay my goal here is to defeat this opponent and so uh, tactically you know I there's a there could be a benefit to having reacquired have now having reacquired control I want to maintain this position of dominance of the center um, dominance of the initiative by continuing to press back forward you know if we get the you know, these are all tactical ideas uh, and and who knows it may have been rationalized in some of those ways historically too except I don't think they would necessarily need to rationalize in that way because it would also be 
there is, this is also an aspect of, of humanism, an aspect of, um, of, of, um, uh, you know, even things that get expressed later as in knightly virtues, but are, you know, are expressed as, as described as virtues of what it is to be a gentleman. There's a different side of things that's going on there that's, that's, that is tactically informing their system, which is the social importance of how, how you fight and who you are as a person and who you are expressing yourself. And that's something that we don't talk about often. You know, like it's, I'm going to admonish a student for giving up too much ground basically for purely tactical reasons, as opposed to, you know, having, you know, lecturing them about, you know, where's your spirit? What's, you know, what sort of, you know, like that, whereas I think that is something that would have happened in a, in, in a, a traditional Italian fencing school in the, in the 1400s or 1500s, is that that would have been, been, you know, somebody that they would have been a different conversation. And it's something perhaps more powerful because humans were so socially driven. Um, you know, in some ways, perhaps that would be more powerful. To, to have that conversation, to you know, for that person to feel this social pressure to act in a certain tactical way, um, uh, is interesting. So I just think that's really, really vital when we're analyzing, when we're trying to extract the tactical system of the Bolognese texts, is to recognize that they're not just fighting um, a computer, you know, computer match of of this this physical principle beats that physical principle, um, or, or even that bringing this sort of attitude is going to bring more vigor or strength, and that could be advantageous for acquiring these things. I think that there's, there's a way that, um, that we have to, when we've got our scholarship hats on, to recognize how much um, the, the, just what it means to be in a sword fight and to be a gentleman and why you're doing that at all um, is important to understanding what they're doing with their swords. That's awesome. That was a beautiful perspective. Um, very cool. Uh, so um, we talked a little bit about teaching. And um, so for you in particular, I, I, this is, um, I, I don't want this to come off as just like pure flattery, but I've, I've talked to a lot of people who have a long tenure in other martial arts and um, have experienced and trained under people who they deem as masters. And I, I know a lot of people don't like the, the term master. So forgive me here for sort of imbuing this upon you. But when I've asked people who they see as somebody exhibiting traits of a master in the general Western martial arts community, um, the two people that I hear the most are yourself and Tan Poi. Um, and, uh, and so I've, I've got some questions for you um, related to really kind of what it takes to kind of take the next step in fencing. Because when I look around the general HEMA community or Western martial arts community and people sort of progressing and growing, looking at the sources and engaging in these really awesome fights, um, there's still, it still seems like there's another plateau that we can start stepping onto and sort of progressing towards. Um, and so what are some of the things that you think are things that people can do to go from being a pretty good fencer to being a really good fencer or a great fencer? Um, thanks for, thanks very much for, for the, the compliments there. And I really love Tom. He's, he's great to, to work with and fence with. And, and so it's, it's flattering to be in his company too. Um, the, uh, I think, 
I think about this and, you know, a lot of the motivation for me in starting Academy Duello was that I wanted to create a focal point where I could train in the ways I wanted to train and, um, and in a way that I could confine swordplay down into a narrower set of skills so that we could push the depth of those skills forward more greatly. When, when your club or your group is a, just a sparring group where you're kind of in this constant state of, of chaotic exploration, which is fun and exciting and that kind of thing. You know, my group, you know, the groups I was a part of, even though I taught in before starting Academy Duella were these kind of chaotic groups and going to a team event, just sparring with a bunch of people is a certain type of chaotic environment. And there's a place for that. We need that. But um, but in a way that's kind of like uh, you need um, ped in pedagogy often and there's there's different arguments around this, but I say that the really strong evidence to suggest that symmetric training is the best starting place and asymmetric training is the is the is the place you want to graduate into. So in symmetric training where me and my partners are doing the same thing and trying to accomplish the same thing allows us that is a narrowing in and of itself. So we're going to be symmetric in that we're going to be trying to implement the same system. We're going to be symmetric in that we're going to be doing the same exercises. We're going to be symmetric in that we're even going to restrict the parameters of how we're sparring or how we're exercising together so that this core set of skills of our system and even a subset of those skills is being practiced so that we can push deeper, explore those skills better, and also you know, use our mirror neurons to steal ideas from each other to 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 use the fact that we're both trying to do the same thing to, to have a conformity, which in conformity, the thing that's powerful about conformity is that again, it presses us into depth. Um, whereas when we get into an asymmetrical environment or to an environment where we're opening it up, we're opening up the walls, we're letting anything happen, then that means that there's going to be, um, there's, a, 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 there's yes, more exploration, more opportunity for, for creativity and this sort of broad sense of creativity. Like, oh, I moved my sword in a way that we haven't moved swords for. And I'm doing, you know, this kind of like, I'm really like opening up the box of what's possible. But it also means that you're spending, you know, if you think about a certain amount of time, you're expending your effort dealing with all of this giant world of what's possible, as opposed to, again, focusing or digging down into this, this narrow world that allows you to get to some subtleties of the art. And so to, to go from, from um, to me, from, you know, from the intermediate space into a more advanced space requires that you narrow what you're doing. And you need to, you know, you need to create a symmetric training environment for yourself. You need to create, you need to get more people, whether it's your students, which is kind of how I, I did. I had students, you know, personal students, and then I had a school where I had more students, where I put them in a box and I said, you're going to work on these skills because this is what you need to do. And uh, so they spent lots of time in, you know, Joko Stretto, with their swords sliding on each other, um, you know, spending a lot of time doing things that look like garbage in a way to just feel and do a lot of that so that by the time they, you know, once they put a year in, they probably spent more time working in binds than at that time than almost anybody like anybody out there was because everybody was so, you know, like kind of bind avoidant. Um, and so, you know, narrowing is what allows you to drive that focus. And then, you know, like I, I could have started this by saying fundamentals, 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 but it's, it's really, again, about reducing down your environment so that what is fundamental is all that there is. And 
Um, and so, you know, I think that the thing that the community, um, I, it's, I'd say, you know, like to, to drive towards that, there's a few, few ideas. So one, narrow it down. The other is that we, if we think about a sword fight um, from, you know, out of measure to making a hit, um, when we are in an environment that is just based around the idea of the success metric is hitting the opponent, um, we're reducing the, the, the place that we're observing in the sword fight to 10% of the sword fight, to this last moment, this last tempo. And there's, a, there's 90% of sword fight that happens before that moment. Um, and, and so you need to, the other thing you need to do to, to get better is you need to create an equal level of value or you need to create winning conditions that come before that last 10%. And so, you know, in, in my school, we create, we've essentially through both through actual legitimate games that are based around this and, and sparring sort of context things, we create in our exercises, a winning condition that is based around control as an example. So can I get control? Can I reacquire control? Can I maintain control when I've got it? Can we play a game? Can I fight for as long as possible while being in control? without ever losing control. And that can be done like it's very obvious in Stretto, but it's done in Largo as well. There's a way that we're controlling the situation. Um, and so by creating that, you know, exercises themselves, people want to get good at exercises. If you've got exercises and drills that you can fail at, then you've created a winning condition that comes before the hitting stage. Um, and so you need to create more winning conditions that reward those earlier stages of fighting. If you want to drive people in your group to get good at them. Um, and then when they're good at them, then they become part of that, that whole. And now suddenly you'll see the people who are able to win the middle of the fight also tend to win the end of the fight. Um, so the, there's, there's, you know, that's, that's another, it's kind of like, so there's this one, this type of a narrowing, and then there's this, this is kind of on the depth perspective of being able to break out the depth between out of measure to hitting and being able to, to parse that apart and be able to create some interim objectives. You know, I even do exercises that are just to do with the first stage, just with to do with entering. How do we enter? How do we enter? We just do exercises where we're doing lots of good entering. We can still create winning conditions for that. Um, and then, of course, you know, you need to, one thing that helps is having somebody experienced with you who's able to kind of give you a sense of why this matters. Why does it matter to win this thing? You know, because that's, that's, I think, is one of the challenges is that when people are, are less experienced, the thing that they know that matters is getting hit by a sword or not getting hit by a sword. That's so clearly what matters. It's hard to know that being in control or not in control matters until you've done a lot of sword fighting. And I think that's the other thing that's challenging that, that limits people from getting into the more advanced stage is that sometimes it's hard to understand um, uh, what, what are winning conditions that matter early on. I certainly found, you know, I remember watching a video not too many years ago that uh, oh there was like there was like a HEMA meme that went around that showed somebody fencing in Longinort, and uh, and it was like it was saying you know like it was a meme that basically was saying if you fight with your point forward you're just going to get taken your sword's going to get cleared and you're going to get smoked this is just like the stupidest place to fight and and then lots of people were just like I just remember I got tons of likes and tons of people were on there like yeah boy people who fight with their sword forward are so idiotic what a bunch of idiots and I thought you know the reality is. If you don't understand how to physically structure yourself when you're fighting sword forward, um, it's super hard and you're going to get smoked. Um, so you actually have to confine yourself in a box where you have to fight sword forward a lot. And once you've done that a lot, 
you start to actually understand how to not get caught by a lot of the, the little traps, which actually is the reason that I think that, you know, in a lot of the glosses, Longinort comes at the end. And why Meyer saves straight bearing Longinort to the end is because it's actually super hard. But if you understand fencing really well, maybe you understand some of the pitfalls of fighting short forward. And then you can really learn the real art. You can learn the stretta, where real fencers invest their time. Um, and once you understand how to do it really well, boy, you surprise some people. But if you never spent the time confined to the box that forced you to really learn how to do that thing, it would be the suckiest position to stand in. I probably like in my, you know, like learning how to win a sword fight in a short space of time, I probably wouldn't have somebody do it. Yep. Um, and so, you know, that's, again, I think it's really about constraint. It's, it's about pedagogical jocostretto um, is what, what is needed to really drive, drive the community forward, drive people forward from intermediate to more advanced. I think that's really interesting because like, I, I know right now, I was just, I just had a, a, an experience where somebody ended up basically providing themselves a constraint um, we've got this big trend right now in our school where everybody's getting the Reginier short because they want to be closer to what the KDF sword would have looked like. So more like a type 15, let's say. Um, and so people are fighting with shorter swords. And I watched an experienced fencer the other day go up and, and try to do this action that I know that they're really good at. They've been incredibly successful in tournaments in the past. And he stepped in and he basically... Um, did a false edge parry on this person's sword and then started to turn his fair cow and his fair cow just literally went like, like three inches <laughs> in front of this guy's face, yeah. you know, and usually that's something that would have landed with a, you know, a hundred centimeter long blade, but he's using something that's at least 10 to 15 centimeters shorter. And, um, and you could tell like his muscle memory was programmed to that, but confining himself to a short sword actually challenged him in a way where I'm sure that he probably hasn't been challenged in, in 10 or 15 years. Um, and I, I just, I like, I know from my experience, um, even though I have much less experience than he does, um, I go back and forth between shorter and longer swords because Manchialino actually speaks to this, right? He, he tells you to fight with a shorter sword or a heavier sword when you're training mm -hmm. uh, to challenge yourself. So that way, when you go into a real fight, you use a lighter sword or a heavier sword or a, a longer sword. Longer sword. Yeah. And then get uh, easier. <laughs> and they get easier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're like, oh, I can't believe my point actually went in there. <laughs> oh, wait, I've got an extra three inches. That makes perfect sense. Um, but, you know, I've, I remember the first time I tried to use a shorter sword and uh, we were just, we had a sparring day and we were out, we were fighting and I was fighting against um, people who I had more experience than and, and I was, I just, I kept getting hit. I was doing fine defending myself but when it came to my attacks, my attacks, again, just like what uh, this other person had experienced, it just seemed to be falling short. It seemed like a lot of my, my tactical framework was just failing me. Um, and I remember the feeling of just like, oh, well, this, this really kind of like, it sucks. Like you, you almost have to just like swallow your ego a little bit and kind of like when you do confine yourself to that box, like pull yourself back into being a beginner again. And, and like you said, kind of focusing on the fundamentals. Um, but I persisted with fighting with a shorter sword. And I, I actually think that made me a better fighter because of like going back and just saying, I, I don't care that I, I'm going to, I'm going to take my blows for the next, you know, however many months as it takes me to adjust to this thing. But 
I'm going to make this, I'm going to make this work, you know? Um, and obviously that's a, a very, um, I don't know, almost a superficial way to view what you're talking about. I mean, I know, I think, I think you've had a lot of influence on, on Chris, my instructor, because, you know, he's, he's definitely, that's the approach ever since I know that he's been had conversations with you. That's been his approach and how he teaches us is confining us to boxes um, and developing our drills and things like that. Um, and, um, you know, like when we started slow sparring, it took me the longest time to really figure out why, like, why, what are we doing with slow sparring? You know, like, why? Are, and one day it clicked. One day it clicked. I, I was thinking about guards and I was thinking about tactics and guards and things like that. And I was like, wait a second. You know, and I think this came from from watching chess, and I was watching, you know, um, like just competitive chess, and I was watching these grandmasters play. And when when grandmasters are playing like over the board, you know, they'll take sometimes they'll take three hours between a move where they're sitting and they're mm -hmm. calculating a move, right? And those are those are games where like oftentimes they end in a draw or if there is some sort of an attack that happens that's successful, it's brilliant, right? It, mm. it just like, because it takes work to get there, you have to think mm -hmm. those three or four steps ahead. Well, more than that in their case, but, and you really have to like construct your attack. Whereas when they play rapid games, they play these really wide open lines. It's where you see a lot of gambits and things that are just like, you're just trying to do something very quick and, and basically relying on your opponent to make a mistake, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's what that's what sparring at speed is. You're just relying on your opponent to make a mistake so you can take advantage. Where when you do slow sparring, you have to develop that tactical mindset that you're you're really approaching the fight like three or four moves ahead. You're you're trying to work your opponent into something where perhaps they do give you an advantageous bind that you can take advantage of. And when it when it hit me, I was just like, oh <laughs> man, this is great. And now I love it. Like I, I absolutely love it. So um I think yeah. that's, I love, I, you're, you're, of course, your listeners can't see that. I was like vigorously nodding. Um, <laughs> uh, I think that's beautiful because what, I think this is also when we're fighting in boxes, constraints come in so many different shapes and speed is a type of constraint. And again, what, what you're talking about so beautifully is that you, you, you had this, this uh, realization that when you constrained the speed, it actually forced the depth. Right. So you went, whereas, you know, often that speed fighting often is in happening in these first couple tempos, you know, like it's people like vigorously making these gambits and, yeah. and hoping their opponent makes a mistake, you know, kind of thing is often what's happening in speed. Um, and whereas when we slow it down now, even a less experienced fencer conceivably is going to be fencing a lot longer and they get to fight a much more depth oriented form of fencing. Um, uh, then it, you actually, it actually elongates this center of the fight, this middle part of the fight, which is the control part. And like you said, you now have to like, really, if you're going to hit somebody in slow fencing without speeding up, um, you really have to like, really put them in a corner. Yeah. Um, and the reality is, is that when you get to very high levels of fast fighting, that's true too. It is. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, slow fencing allows us to actually explore the depth of more experienced level fast fighting earlier. Yeah. Um, and it also allows us to emphasize the importance of the control part. And that's the thing I think I love in your story about fighting with the shorter sword in a way that created an environment 
where whether you were thinking about it that way or not, it forced you to focus on the control part rather than the hit part. Whereas if you'd had an equal length sword to your opponent or maybe a longer sword, you could have been trapped in the, you could have been in the trap of focusing on the hit part for a lot longer. Um, and so often, you know, what I'm doing with my students here, somebody may come to me with this problem of I'm getting hit in this way or I'm not hitting in this way. But the solution is often not to take that last tempo and figure out how we solve it. The solution is actually to go back and actually put them in the appropriate box for the control part that came before it. Set some new objectives for them, set some new exercises that are about that middle part. How do you never get into the circumstance that you ended up in there? How do you, or how do you engineer the circumstance reliably that means you're, way, you're that much closer to your opponent? And so thus you can hit them. You know, it's, it's actually the, the symptom, the hit is the symptom. Um, and so that's, that's, again, you know, back to that original question of what you got for, you know, again, being in boxes. The reason we use boxes is that we need to get away from approaching our fencing based on the symptoms and start approaching our fencing based on the causes based on the, the, and that's when we talk about fundamentals. I think sometimes people think fundamentals is like being able to do my Zverchow really well, or being able to hit really accurately with my point when I'm doing a stoccata or whatever, like think that is the fundamental. But, but really what we're talking about is we're talking about it's more like layers of strata and that, you know, that, that the fundamentals are as we, you know, we could say hitting is the top of the pyramid, you know, and that we actually, okay, what happens comes before hitting is, you know, this sort of tactical advanced control, being in control, this sort of deeper stage in the fight. And then what comes below that? Well, actually being able to, you know, trans get into control and maintain control. That's quite a, kind of this more of this middle space. And then, you know, even more fundamental that is getting into the control position in the first place or recovering the control position when you've lost it. You know, this is the fundamentals we're talking about. And sometimes that sort of fundamental can include some quite complex skills. You know, of course, it includes very minute little techniques, you know, disengages and counter disengages and cutovers and unders and, and you know, and ways that we change guard, etc. Um, but, you know, what's fundamental is, is more that it is the basis upon which you, you tactically and strategically place yourself into a position where the hit part is actually easy. The hit part's just there. Um, and so that's, that's the fundamental that you're talking about, you know, that, that we're getting to by this, this putting into boxes that you just started to discover with a short sword that forced you to work on something that was fundamental or slow fencing, which forces you to, to work on something that's fundamental in a different way, as well as doing a whole bunch of other things. Slow fencing, I could talk for hours on all the different things we could get out of slow fencing, but, uh, yeah, that's great. So when you're, when you're looking at this and you're, from a historical context, how do you parse those things, those elements that kind of help build up and, and create the boxes that are necessary for people to kind of take the next step? How do you take those things out of the sources? Like, where do you, how do you, are you looking at multiple sources? Are you looking across sources for ideas of perhaps this is something that, you know, can, can help benefit and, and like, how do you develop that? You know, it's, it's interesting to think about, about that question and, and its connection to sources, especially at this stage. Um, you know, I didn't, when I started, the sources were not as accessible, you know, like, so it was just a very different a thing. And, you know, I don't, I don't even know how I would, how, what it would look like for me to start, like, truly, I like, I really, I work with a lot of people and I have lots of people start out and I started out a lot of people. Um, but, 
but you know, like, especially for me, not in a school, formal school, like develop, I was just out in the, the world and, you know, and like as many people are, Hey, I love, I've learned about this online and I've got some friends together or I'm with a small group and we're kind of exploring together. Um, uh, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I have to admit, I don't, you know, like to think about how I would, what that would feel like, how I would approach that myself now. It's very challenging. Um, uh, the, I, I'm going to answer kind of in a broader way. I have a couple different hats that I wear um, when I'm as a martial artist, as a martial arts teacher. Um, I have a scholarship hat that I wear. And so when I put my scholarship hat on, I'm really trying to, you know, I have, I kind of put myself in a box of saying, okay, I need to understand this text within text first. How am I, how do I parse apart what's going in the text? What's explicitly stated there? Then I want to place that text within its environment, which can be its social cultural environment. And so I want to understand what's going on. What are the influences on this person? I then want to maybe place it within this martial context. What's going on? And that's other people who are writing in that time. How do I then have that inform um, the text? Um, and so that's all my sort of scholarship side. And I might spend time exercising, practicing, even fencing, where I'm actually like trying to lock myself into that book in an explorative way. Um, that's scholarship hat on. Um, and in a way, my, what my, one of my causes, one of my confining things is the book, what's in the text. Um, whereas when, I'm a, when, I'm, uh, when I have my martial artist hat on, um, then what I'm trying, and this is, they both inform each other. What I, now the causes are not the book. The causes are, um, what's the weapon that I'm using? What is the context that I'm fighting in? What is the, what's the social context, environmental context? Um, what is the, the, you know, what are the properties of this weapon and how, how does that inform how I need to align my body and work my body? How does this, um, uh, what is respecting the deadliness of the weapon? How does that inform how, how I'm fencing and how my opponent is approaching the situation? And do I want to kill them, injure them, disable them? Uh, you know, all of this, these are the causes. And these are the causes that the historical masters were thinking about. Um, uh, they were thinking about these things. This is what informed what fencing would become for them. Um, they weren't thinking about, uh, am I doing it by the book? Right. They were they, so so as a martial artist, that's what's informing what's going on for me is the is the, the these deeper causes. You know, we're talking about what's fundamental. And so when I so one thing, I think that it's important that you that you wear both hats as a practitioner. Um, I think it's important that if you want to be a scholar, I think if you don't want to be a scholar, that's great, too. I actually don't. I'm not I'm not I'm not not righteous in any sort of, of need uh, in any particular direction. Um, but if you want to be a scholar, you need to spend some time, some time putting yourself in the box of what's in the book. You know, I'm going to, you know, and this is, this can be drills and exercises where you start from the step of plays or where you're fighting with the goal of recreating a particular action, or those are terrible ways to fight as a martial artist, but they're certainly interesting and good ways to fight as a scholar. Um, and, uh, and so then, you know, the boxes are, I'm, you know, like I'm trying to create games and circumstances or I'm trying to create create constraints that put me into a place where I can can with my brain on you know and slow fencing is this too where I can try shoehorning in this this particular action this particular passage um, uh, from from uh, uh, from a source you know we're going to do a particular action from an assalto 
And you're just going to do, you know, like it could be everything from you're going to do whatever the crap you want. And I'm just going to like do this action like you aren't even there and just see what happens. You know, I'm just going to try and do this. Does this, does this work against lots of different things? Why have you started a lot of different guards? Why have you started a lot of different attacks? So we've created a box that's about me practicing this action. And then you giving me as much chaos or as little chaos as, as I want. So that's all scholarship stuff. Then on the Marshall side, you need to spend this time with this hat on where you're saying, um, and this is even, so we can say, I'm going to talk about Marsh, putting your Marshall hat on, but still as a scholar, putting your Marshall hat on, but still as a scholar is saying, let's put, let's make the box. How do we create a fighting environment where we have the same causes as the historical master that I'm studying? So where, you know, there's, there's certainly some of the, the KDF material is aimed towards this like fry factor um, uh, kind of, which is like a sporting form of sparring. You know, like, um, so, you know, what's that box look like? You know, some of the, the spot of the Joko is, has a certain box. How do we create a spot of the Joko box and, and fence in that box? But we're not, and I don't need to do any technique that's from, I'm not, the book, the book is not my box right now. My box is the causes. And so I'm going to spend some time just letting myself fight. And so the thing that I, I the, the thing we have to be aware of is, um, you know, if, uh, um, if, you know, just slapping the person with the point of my sword, if we think that that's part of the box of that particular historical master, then it's perfectly valid. And you're going to get a bunch of techniques that all involve, um, you know, slapping them with the point of your sword. But if you think that, if you think in the box and you do your research there, you think, you know, I think that Manchelino would probably have kicked me out of the school if, if he saw me flitting about trying to just slap people and saying, score to point, um, then that shouldn't be in the box. Right. So we're, we're creating a box where we, you know, so our, our school, like Duella was really formed on the idea of this box, this box of causes in that we have three tenants and they are proper arms, proper respect, proper context. Um, and that's, that is, let's use simulators that get as close to the real deal as possible so that when we're, we can learn from the weapon itself in the way that the, that the people that came before us were. Um, Let's respect the weapon as deadly, respect our opponents and deadly and not treat this as a point scoring magic wand, but treat it as, as the weapon that it is. And this also means Ahima sometimes goes on the opposite end of the spectrum where it's like, if you're not like going to cleave the head off of somebody, if it's not like full power, full content at all times, you're not really doing it authentically. You just, so spend some time with real swords and actually find out how little it takes and how just freaking terrified you'd be of, of a sharp sword across from you if you're not wearing armor. Um, so that's what that informs that proper respect side and then proper context, which is, you know, creating the environmental context, creating, you know, trying to create something that puts the social context in um, to study it. And my goal was, you know, if I threw, threw a hundred people in a room, um, how could I, if for 20 years, what, were, what would be the rules that I would put in place to hopefully have them just on their own spontaneously recreate Italian fencing. So that, that's kind of the, the idea that we, that we, cause I, I want, you know, as a, as a, as a practitioner, as a teacher, this to be the vibrant martial arts that, that we need it to be, to really be influential in the world. It needs to have life. It can't just be about scholarship. It can't just be about reenactment of the past. It needs, you need to be able to spontaneously express techniques based on principles and to have that be authentic. This is the thing that I think we look to from the sources, to have it be authentic, then you need to create causes that feel authentic to you. 
So if we can have a set of causes that, that make me feel like, well, this is really, like, I feel like I'm really at least recreating what it was to train in a sala historically, train amongst a bunch of people that could be using it for real and cared about using it for real. So it's authentic because I'm sort of putting the imagination on that. Well, what if I'm in a real sword fight? I don't want to train some techniques that's crap in a real sword fight. Uh, that's a way that we can create authenticity. So, and then that allows for a, 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 some realm of true exploration, some true spontaneity um, um, and some true expression of authentic technique, meaning I'm doing something from principles. To me, I, my happiest moment is when a student does something that is right out of manual, but not because they were trying to do something that was right out of a manual. They were just fighting their opponent. And it just turns out that just, you know, those guys were doing those things because they were functional within their context. So they, the student did that because it was functional within this context. Um, and so that's, that is, you know, again, this is this idea of these different hats, the causes of the book and the causes of, of the real martial environment. That's, that's how I think you need to approach. If you want to really forward your scholarship, you even need to do that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I reference your video of uh, resting a pig carcass all the time when I'm talking <laughs> to my students. <laughs> yeah. I think it, it's like required watching uh, because it, it emphasizes so well the importance of body mechanics. Um, and I, I think that relates directly to that, right? I mean, it's it's kind of the idea that, you know, you talk about uh, the importance of body mechanics kind of fitting into that that whole thing and what, what the actual martial objective is of what it, you're doing. You know, in a, in a point scoring contest, something like just a, a random stoccata that's just kind of like haphazardly just like thrown with the forearm it'll land you a point, but it's not going to actually, you know, have any sort of true martial context. So, you know, that, that, that emphasis on, on treating this like a martial art and making sure that your body mechanics align with things that actually work, um, is, is awesome. Cause I, I was, I mean, I always kind of thought about this and, and this is something I've gone back and forth about, but like Manchialino in particular talks about, um, the angle of a cut going from, the ear down through the knee and you think about how steep that is in terms of like the angulation of a cut um and for me in particular that was something that actually helped me when i was trying to cut um targets um mm. it, it made my cutting better it made my body dynamics better it, it made me activate my hips more when i was cutting um and really start to focus in on getting the rest of my my body mechanics in line in order to sort of let the sword just kind of fall and drive through my cut whereas the arm was so much less important where you mm -hmm. know, sort of preconceived notion before that you know the cut could go through like a 45 degree angle but your body doesn't really turn your sword through a 45 degree angle very well but if you start with an, a high cut like that and you're you're kind of letting the sword descend and you do engage your body and engage your hips mm. and everything like that you'll turn the sword in a 45 and then right. it's like, oh man, it's like 3D chess, you know, it's just kind of like this meta thing that comes out and you're just like, wow, there's a lot more here than I realized. Like there's all of these things, you know, but you would never, you would never quite get that um, from just the, I mean, it, it's a combination of things, right? Like that's, that's almost like the martial perspective and the scholarly perspective kind of informing one another in terms of helping to develop that thing. Um, so yeah. That's really interesting. Um, and and I, I love that perspective and I'm, 
obviously it's going to take uh, applying that and, and integrating in what I'm doing. But I, I love that because I've been, I think, I like working with somebody like Chris, who's my instructor, is very much a martial arts focused instructor with his background. You know, he's got, I think, like 26 years in Kuksul, right? So he, mm -hmm. a lot of his emphasis is on that. Whereas, um, and, and he's always, he's, he's provided me my foundation. Whereas for me as an, as a fencer, um, I started to gravitate more towards the texts. And then when I've taught my own classes, um, I oftentimes focus so much on the text and I've always kind of wondered what, where the balance is between those things. But I think you've given me a really beautiful perspective to kind of focus on. So I appreciate that. Great. Yeah. I hope that that opens up some doors for you and, and to our listeners. And I think, I think it's important. I think this all also this idea of being able to put on different hats is important. And so, you know, let yourself put on, put on those different hats. Um, Cause that's also just going to expand you as a martial artist and a teacher, even if you have the place you love to sit and the hat that you love to wear, it's going to make you love that hat more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, I know we've gone on a lot about the other things, but we need to talk about the, um, the upcoming uh, North American Bolognese event that's going to be happening that you guys are hosting up in Vancouver. Um, so, um, tell me a little bit about the event, um, what the uh, what the goals are, and um, and what what people can look forward to. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about the event. It's kind of in a way, COVID kind of helped create the environment for that event to happen. Um, you know, Stephen was, uh, uh, it was really kind of the first passionate energy, Stephen Vratis behind that event going down. He was like, I want to do a Bolognese event. I want to get people together. Where can we do it? And I was like, well, I would love to have people here. I'm really passionate about Bolognese arts. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and then, and then um, because of COVID, we were kind of like, well, what, we don't necessarily want to plan a big this event like we normally would be. Um, uh, so what if we do a smaller, more intimate, more focused event instead? And so our, our team got on board with that, that thing. So the, the, the idea of the event is, um, is we're going to do it right here at Duello. We've got a really beautiful space. We've got about 5,000 square feet. We've got room to have a couple tracks and, uh, and lectures. And uh, happening February 18th to 20th, 2022. Um, as long as the world can hold itself together, world hold yourself together. Um, and, uh, uh, the it's, it, our, our goal is to, uh, it's really putting ourselves in the box of Bolognese arts, um, two tracks. One is really looking at what is fundamental. And so we talked a lot about that here, you know, it is fundamental technique and mechanics, but it's also fundamental aspects of, of fencing and really digging into that aspect of, of fundamental as well as fundamental, um, uh, looking at, you know, how and where we might bring that from sources, but also just fundamental of, you know, what is good sword fighting uh, with these weapons in this context. Um, and then the other track is really about um, from page to application. So this is looking at, you know, how do we extract great stuff from the assaults? How do we extract great stuff from the steadity? How do we create the environment where we really apply those skills? So that's a part of it. Um, Another part of it is uh, working groups where we get, uh, where we, you know, I really want this to be something that people who not just, this is not an event for new people. This is an event, for, like new people are welcome, but it's an event for people who are enthusiastic about 
these systems. And I want to really get all the people that are excited about it together so that we can all be collaborative with one another, learn from each other. So we're actually creating also some collaborative working group sessions where people will in the evenings primarily, but also at a few lunch times, get together and work on interpretations, translations of some of the kind of harder nuts to crack um, of the, the Bolognese text, whether that's, you know, the Trivolato um, or the Traversato, you know, these ideas, these kind of areas that we don't have as much definition of, you know, we can have some, some violent, uh, but, but, but collegial arguments about, about what those things might be. Um, so, you know, part of it also to move the scholarship forward. Uh, and also even in the, we're going to be doing, um, uh, the, there's going to be a fencing portion, but the fencing portion is a format of tournament I really love, which is an accolade tournament. And that is one that's based on fencing as many people as you can. Um, and then we actually give accolade to fencers that represented skill and application of, of techniques of the system, um, martial prowess and, and virtue uh, are kind of the three sort of core areas. But instead, it's actually creating, and this is kind of a different thing. This is, again, another historical way of doing this is that historically there were gatherings and there are still in, in Italian schools and martial arts, there were gatherings of schools and the, the, the payoff there was not the person who scored the most points. It was definitely more socially judged as to who displayed um, the art or the virtue of it. So we're actually creating something I think is more authentic to the Bolognese tradition through this accolade tournament concept. Um, and so we'll have that. So it'll be lots of time for people to spar and explore. And it's also a great format for people of all different experience levels. It's not about who, who's managed to develop a technique that can hit the most people. It's really, um, you know, it gives you a lot of room and you can do it all. You know, people can do slow fencing, they can do at speed fencing. It's really about the beauty of sword fighting. So that's, that's another, component of this whole event and then a whole lecture track where we'll be diving into how do you do interpretation how do you do translation um and uh and so it's i think it's going to be just if you're excited about bolognese martial arts um this is going to be the event so jd i'm expecting you're going to be there because i know you're excited about bolognese martial arts <laughs> <laughs> yes i am yes i'm going to be there um I'm, I'm very very much looking forward to it i got my passport just for this so awesome Yep. Yeah, and I know I know a lot of folks coming from different places are often intimidated about traveling to another country. Um, even right now, I've been traveling back and forth between the U.S. and Canada right now, and um, it is not as as you know. Get your passport. That's one thing you got to do. Um, you know, so I recommend you get on that early if you don't have it now already. I know things in the U.S. system are a little slow right now, yes. but uh, it's very easy to cross into Canada. Um, uh, even with COVID stuff, it's like pretty simple. You can you can even you can buy a test at Costco that is uh, that will get you on an airline to come into Canada, um, or you can get I don't I don't I went to a Rite Aid and got a test for free that let me cross back into Canada. So it's very easy to get across the border, um, and uh, yeah. We'd love to have as many people as we can cram into this space to uh, to celebrate these arts. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, do you uh, so far um, have you guys figured out who your instructors are going to be, or is there any sort of announcements in that regard, or is that um, well, I I we're we're I've got a, I I wish that I had had a few announcements I could make now. I just I I don't I we I'm, I I am pretty certain. Uh, meaning we've got a bunch of instructors who are like, yes, I'm just you know just figuring out to make sure to confirm the the times and things so um uh but we, yeah we've we've asked um a real select group of instructors from around the world uh yeah there's going to be some exciting people there so awesome yeah that sounds great well devin thanks for your time um i really appreciate it thanks for uh coming on and, and i mean that 
I, I'm going to use this podcast as a resource for myself and probably listen to it multiple times. So I, I feel like if, if I got so much value from it, then everybody else will as well. Um, I, I, okay. I can't think. So glad. Coming. Yeah. Well, you know, I think running a podcast is a great way to get a chance to talk with a lot of, of uh, excellent enthusiastic practitioners and get as much from it as you can. So I, I fully assume that the selfish motivation of this podcast is a big part is that, <laughs> you know, getting to set up those conversations. So I'm, I'm glad to contribute to that. For sure. Well, thanks again. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks uh, for inviting me. And that concludes another episode of Learte del Arme, the Bolognese podcast. Um, I just can't thank Devin enough, uh, for coming on and sharing his perspective, um, his insight into a lot of the things that we discussed in this podcast is going to be something that's going to stick with me for a very long time. Um, I hope that, uh, you as the listener took as much out of that as I did, um, but getting an opportunity to talk to him and, and really kind of get his mind on these things, um, is, was really special for me. Um, and uh, I think this is going to be a podcast that me personally, I'm going to reference uh, for years to come um, as I approach and and try to uh, learn and become a better fencer. Um, it's just absolutely fantastic. Um, so I can't thank Devin enough for, for coming on and, and sharing that with us. Uh, next week's guest is going to be uh, Connor Kim Cow. Connor is a uh, lead instructor at uh, the Philly Common Fencers Guild. Um, he is a practitioner of Filippo Vadi, uh, but lately he's been uh, diving into the Bolognese texts, and uh, we're going to talk about what that's like uh, going from that transition to uh, mid 15th century uh, Italian fencing into 16th century <laughs> Italian fencing. Uh, so stay tuned for that and stay saucy, my friends. <laughs>